folks, uh, welcome. Uh, it's uh, uh, my privilege to introduce uh, Jason Lyle, an associate professor uh, of political science and the director of the Political Violence Field Lab at uh, Yale University. Uh, actually, uh, you almost need no introduction because we uh, used your uh, Rage Against the Machine oh, yeah. I.O. piece okay. um, in my undergraduate national security course oh, great. Uh, last week. Uh, and sorry only, if you had to read it. So, <laughs> not, not only a uh, fine article, but uh, also a, uh, a fine title. Uh, Jason has published uh, literally all over the place in the APSR, the AJPS, Foreign Affairs, International Organization, Journal of Conflict Resolution, Journal of Peace Research, Journal of Politics, uh, and World Politics. Um, and he's done a variety uh, of different projects uh, that have had uh, sponsorship from various elements of the U.S. government, including AID. Uh, Minerva once, was uh, it Air Force Minerva? Yes, yeah, so one is Air Force Minerva, one's just Air Force. Okay, yeah. um, and uh, just the, uh, the Air Force. And his uh, uh, topic today, why armies break, uh, explaining mass desertion and conventional war. My first question is going to be, does it explain mass student desertion uh, <laughs> in class? Uh, before I uh, turn it over to Jason, uh, I'm going to pass around the, uh, the seating chart and also the NDIS uh, <coughs> sign-up sheet, if you're not uh, on the uh, uh, NDIS sign-up sheet. So please join me in giving Jason Lyle a warm sap and welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I promise nothing about student desertion. Uh, if I'd known that, I would have solved it myself for my own classes. I have not been able to do that. Um, what is the norm here? Do I do I get to talk uninterrupted? Because that always scares me a little. Oh, it, it's true. Yes. Okay. Well, I can do that. Um, or but, we can interrupt you. Or you could interrupt me. I I am perfectly comfortable being interrupted. Uh, yeah. Well, the joke is you get four minutes to talk and then we jump in on you. So um, you don't have to do that. South Bend sounds much more polite and and, and pleasant maybe than New Haven does. Um, but um, but please, if you have questions or something's not clear, I, I think please please interrupt. And, and if I can't handle it, and, you know. A minute or two, I'll, I'll defer to the to the Q and A. Um, uh, many of you may know that I work in Afghanistan now, mostly. Um, this is not that. Um, for the last six years or so, well, it's probably about seven now. Uh, I have been working in the background to uh, construct a new data set of conventional wars and something that would move hopefully past the correlates of war and replace it with something that I thought was more representative of the combatants who fought conventional war since about 1800. Uh, and so the paper that you uh, have in front of you, if you had a chance to see it, um, you'll see that there is a snippet of that data set in the, uh, the paper. And this is, paper is really designed to be the lead article for the book, uh, which is now uh, rapidly being finished and rapidly trying to get sent to the press before the new year begins. And so um, what I'd like to do is, is take about 35 minutes or so, if that's kind of in the norm. Perfect. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and just to highlight the argument with a, a very small snippet, which is on the question of mass desertion and why it occurs, and see if I can convince you of my explanation against alternative um, explanations. And I'm going to try this and see if it works. Oh, perfect. Um, so what explains mass desertion in conventional wars? Uh, it, it may seem odd, but in political science, we actually really don't have good explanations of desertion because we typically don't actually ask the question. 
Most of our theories of warfare, most of our theories of coercion sort of just skip over the question of desertion writ large, and yet it's had an enormous role in history. This is a picture from the, uh, the Russian army, which is disintegrating on the Eastern Front in World War I. This is actually here, one of the officers trying to beat his men back into line. Uh, I would be, make a forced analogy to my students and trying to force them, but we have less tools of coercion against our students. Uh, but it obviously matters. We have these great, enormous historical cases where, in, in the case of the Russian, uh, the Russian army, not only did it collapse in the battlefield and go home, the actual state did too as a consequence of, of the desertion, arguably. Uh, you need not go all the way back in time to find these, these prominent examples. We are living through one now. Uh, the desertion, the mass desertion of the Iraqi army in the face of ISIS uh, um, emergence in 2012 is another contemporary case where the Iraqi army did not stand and fought. It, it deserted, and these here, actually, these are the lines of helmets and clothing being discarded by soldiers as they're trying to return back to their home fronts. So there's a historical pattern of these, these big kind of, these, uh, you know, like the Russian Revolution type cases, but they're in our contemporary cases as well. Why it matters, so why study this beyond just these sort of big graphic cases which are of intrinsic interest? Well, and there's at least four reasons why we might want to do this. One, desertion might explain battlefield outcomes. If we're interested in, in the particular battles, the fact that your soldiers are fleeing um, is probably not good for your chances of victory. Okay? Uh, so we, if you want to understand battlefield outcomes, this is something we, we care about deeply. If you care about war outcomes, if you have desertion that's large enough to leave your army riddled in the field and you can't muster all of your soldiers to fight, your odds of victory are probably going down. Right? And so desertion might actually be a pathway not just to battlefield outcomes, but to war outcomes as well. But there's also, um, it also raises questions for a lot of our theories of coercion and socialization and recruitment. A lot of the work that's on sort of military indoctrination or socialization, whether in rebels in, in civil war context or in armies in a conventional war context, really assumes that soldiers come in as blank slates. They're sort of overwritten with a, a, you know, a code that they're going to follow and obey orders. They're socialized or indoctrinated through boot camp, through hazing, through small formation of, of primary group bonds. Uh, and they become soldiers, right? But most of those stories that we tell and these mechanisms that we cite don't really allow for mass-scale desertion. Desertion is weird if socialization is working, right? Or at the very least, it's calling into question that there will be conditions under which socialization itself won't actually work. But we don't know much about those particular conditions, okay? So it raises these questions about our mechanisms more at a micro level of how we create soldiers and why soldiers stay soldiers on the battlefield. And then finally, and this is something that the book pushes uh, fairly hard, but I'm not going to talk too much about today. We typically, in political science, treat wars as if they were a sort of defined sphere, right? There's a battlefield and there's a homeland. And the two don't really touch. In our theories, you know, we, if you have a lot of troops, maybe that's how the homeland affects the battlefield. But here, desertion is the mechanism that links what's going on in the front lines to what's going on in the rear areas, because deserters go home. Right? Deserters then prey upon their civilian population sometimes. Sometimes they prey upon your own armies sometimes. They chew up your logistics lines. And sometimes they're being hidden in and among the population. So desertion is a mechanism that actually connects the front line to the rear areas and the homeland in a way that we typically treat those as separate spheres. I want to try and treat them as one with the flow of soldiers backwards home as the sort of the conduit by which war influences come back to the home front. Okay? Uh, now, when we look at desertion, there's a number of problems just sort of writ large. One, uh, there's actually an enormous conceptual confusion over what counts as desertion in the literature. And I blame this on historians. 
um, in part because political scientists haven't really actually looked at the issue enough to be confused. Um, historians have, uh, and they have raised a whole host of different issues that count as desertion. So sometimes your soldiers go and they join the other side, that counts as desertion. Sometimes they go home, they harvest the crops, they come back, that's desertion. Sometimes they go AWOL, they come back. Sometimes they go home, they don't come back, that's desertion. Sometimes they riot, that's desertion. Sometimes they have conscription rights, that's desertion. Uh, sometimes they just have strikes in the trenches, that's desertion or mutinies. Um, so there's a whole sort of conceptual confusion about what actually constitutes desertion, which hopefully on the next slide I will disabuse you of the notion because we'll put a definition down in place. Um, the second, again, is this where we have folk wisdom about why desertion might occur, right? But we don't actually have good concrete theories or tests of those theories. Uh, and then the big thing is why don't we have these theories is in part we don't have data. Uh, for the most part, political scientists have largely sort of ignored the issue. Uh, historians uh, have looked at in depth in some units, sometimes some armies, and in some cases certain wars. But we don't have anything that's cross-national in scope. So we don't actually know how deep the problem is, or how pervasive the problem is, because we've never put the data together to do that. And so what I'll show you today is a little bit of that data, uh, something we call Project Mars. Um, which uh, was about six years in the making of the coding. And uh, this is my shout out here to the, I had 96 coders work on this project over the period of time. And uh, we worked in 21 different languages. So most of the data that you're gonna see here, the quantitative data you're gonna see here, actually the qualitative too, for that matter, uh, is non-English. Uh, and that was one of the commitments we made when we did Project Mars. We were gonna move past the correlates of war by coding in non-English uh, non sources. And so most of this is in um, languages other than English. So there's almost no data. So we don't even know how big the problem is. Okay, so let me put a definition down in place. This will be the dependent variable for the talk. Um, so mass desertion is the unauthorized wartime withdrawal of a unit or a group of soldiers from the battlefield or rear, uh, rear areas with the intention of permanently abandoning the fight. You are going home and you're gonna stay at home, okay? And the idea here is that it can take one of two forms. Uh, sometimes in the army it, it actually takes both forms. One is you just go home and you hide among the civilian population, right? You don't want to be returned or found again by the state. And so you're going to uh, attempt to return to your pre-war life, whatever that was before. You're going to hide. The second one is you're going to become a criminal or a gang member, uh, and you're going to move in these rear areas, and you're going to prey upon the civilian population. And you're going to do so in order to, to make a livelihood, to steal resources, to steal money, feed yourself, things like that. But it's not in connection with what the adversary is doing. You're just out there in these rear areas um, conducting brigage and, and, and preying on the population. Uh, a good example of that is actually, uh, you don't have to look too far for that, the Confederate States of America. Enormous desertion problem. Uh, many of the deserters went home and began, uh, became uh, criminal organizations that had to be cracked down on by the, the Confederate State Army itself. Okay, so these people went home and began chewing up the logistics lines and things like that. What does mass mean? So mass here is a pretty crude indicator. It means that more than, 10% or more of your total fielded force got up and went home, okay? That's when we start saying mass kicked in. So we're not talking about a couple soldiers sneaking away at night in the field or in the forest when the, you know, the provost guard isn't watching, okay? This is mass, this is large numbers of soldiers picking up and going home. So it's a pretty high threshold for this to happen, okay? And that's why we wanna kind of separate it out from the trickle. This is more of a, a, a flood of soldiers leaving your army. How often does it happen then? Okay, so this is the Project Mars data. Uh, you're basically looking at conventional wars from 1800 to until 2011. There are 825 combatant observations. So if you think of your spreadsheet, you have 825 rows going down, each representing a combatant's experience in those given wars. Um, 
And then there's 228 combatants in the overall data set, unique combatants. Uh, about 124 of those are new that are not in the correlates of war. Okay, so we're bringing in a lot of new kind of uh, new kinds of countries uh, into the data set. By frequency, if you're looking at just the war observations, you look at the entire data set, about 35% of the war observations record mass desertion occurring. That fluctuates a little bit by time period. The pre-1917 period, almost 40% were gonna get mass desertion. In the uh, 1918 and, and after, it's about 30%. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty high frequency event. Why it's partitioned like that, uh, 1917 is sort of seen as the emergence of the modern era, according to Steve Biddle and others who work in this sort of uh, vein, that this is where we're into the modern era of conventional war, so I just divide it that way. But it's a, it's a big problem by combatant observation. It's an enormous problem by combatant. So if you look at the overall combatants and the overall data set, 55% of combatants have experienced at least one episode of mass desertion in their armies. Okay, so just over half. Fluctuates a little bit. The pre-1917 period is pretty quite frequent. 62% of the combatants have had at least one episode of it. Uh, and then in our more contemporary era, it drops a little bit. It's around 46%, about roughly half. Um, so what that's showing you is that it's not the same state over breaking over and over and over, and I can't hold its forces together. Lots of armies struggle with this. And if you want to just sort of think of the empirical distribution, some states don't have any of this. Lots of states have one episode, some have two, and then there is an outlier where there's a few that are constantly having problems with desertion. The Iraqi army, for example, deserts a lot, historically speaking, okay? Which is something good to know if you're actually gonna go and try and restructure the security sector. You'd wanna know if there's a prior history of desertion. Iraq has it. Um, but this is not necessarily the same combatant over and over and over failing. It's that you're getting lots of them having these problems over time, okay? So, I'm going to propose my argument, very quickly do uh, some alternative explanations, and then just very quickly go through some of the main findings, and then I'll just turn it over to the audience, and, and we, can, we can have a, a, a dialogue. Uh, my argument begins from the premise that all leaders need to legitimate themselves on the home front. How do they do that? They construct identity projects. These identity projects tell basically, or define the political community, says who's in it, what we call the core group, and who's not in it the non-core group. Why this is important is that this notion of identity sets up your citizenship and your rights and responsibilities and, and, and protection inside the state. Okay. Now, what I want to do is create the notion or open up the notion that states decide how military power is defined inside their states. There is a notion of military inequality at work. In some states, Everyone's a citizen, and everyone has access to being in the military. Everyone can serve. There's no restrictions on it, no ethnic restrictions in particular on it. Okay? In other states, that's not true. Okay? And as we get more and more restrictive on who can serve and the rights and obligations of those people serving, and in particular, whether they're protected from the state, the higher that military inequality gets, the more likely you are to see wartime desertion. This inequality is measured in the pre-war era, okay? not the wartime era. So what I'm trying to do is push back on these theories that say, well, we need to look on the battlefield, we need to look at the actual dynamics of the war front. I'm actually arguing that the pre-war era is where the, the chances or the expectations of desertion are set up. So I want to go into the structural factors at the beginning, not necessarily the dynamics on the battlefield per se. And in that, I'm really having a conversation with my colleagues who are Civil War people, uh, including myself, uh, which is an odd conversation to have in some ways, uh, that it's not all about the dynamics of the battlefield. It's not all happening at the battlefield. 
there are certain things that are set up in the pre-war era that will define how those dynamics unfold. We need to understand them. So this is anchoring in, in the pre-war notion of military inequality across these societies, okay? And so that's what's going to condition the level of wartime desertion. Now, what we can do is think of identity types as a spectrum. Okay, and this is where I'm gonna stand up because it's a little bit easier to do this. Just imagine that there's three basic types of identities. Type zero, type one, type two. In a type zero, you have an inclusionary state, an inclusionary identity project, right? It basically says everyone's a citizen, there are no restrictions on who can serve, and there's obviously no violence being directed against groups within society, okay? So the military inequality is low. Here, national security is a public good, just like our textbooks tell us. It's the quintessential definition of a public good, national security, okay? In this type of state, that's true, okay? Uh, the the non-core groups, there aren't really non-core groups. Everybody's defined as a citizen, and so there's no restrictions on uh, on who can serve, things like that. Present-day Canada is a, it would be a, a classic kind of example. Then there are type twos, what we call these glass ceiling states. They look at certain, they have certain groups within society that they define as being non-core, and they marginalize them, okay? So they have a, a medium level of military inequality, right? And in this case, security is defined more as a club good. Not everybody gets full access to it. There are restrictions on it. There's no violence directed against these groups, but they can't serve in as many roles in the military. Maybe their promotion is blocked. Maybe there's roles within the military that they can't go into because they're seen as disloyal or, or potentially subversive, okay? So they have group-based restrictions. Pakistan in 1947 to 70 is a kind of classic example of this, marginalizing certain groups, the Bengalis, within the military. Let me go over to type two. Type twos are repressive, they have a repressive sort of vision of their, um, of their projects. What they'll essentially do is target groups within their society for repression by the state, okay? In it, military inequality is high, not only now because access is restricted, but in part because the protection from the state has been lifted. These groups are being punished by the state as a state-directed policy. So national security here is not a public good, it's not a club good anymore, it's a private good. Only certain groups now within society will be able to enjoy the benefits of national security. So we've tinkered with this sort of classic notion of it being a public good and pulled it all the way over to being its opposite now, okay? Uh, the view of the non-core from the state, they're gonna look at these populations within them and they say these are alien populations, okay? These are people that they're not like us and we should repress them. They are not, they are not subject to our same laws and they're not subject to the same restrictions or same um, duties and obligations as we are, okay? They're outsiders. And so you get group-based violence. Soviet Union, classic example, targeting along ethnic criteria in the 1920s, 1930s, punishing these states down, okay? When I talk about um, groups, I have in mind ethnic groups, okay? Now, I think the argument is more general than that of different categories of membership, but here I focus on ethnicity uh, for a couple of reasons, which I'll explain. So when I'm talking about core or non-core, it's really defined ethnically here in this, in this um, spectrum. Okay, so we go from basically inclusion to marginalization to repression. As you move up these steps, the odds of wartime desertion are gonna get higher as we go across. Oops, I went the wrong way, sorry. So you might be thinking, well, how does pre-war military inequality affect what's going on in the war, right? Like how does that actually transmit into, into the wartime behavior? And there's two mechanisms. One is morale, which is an individual level mechanism. And the second is through the composition of the units how the military constructs its, its, the actual units. On the morale side, if you're a non-core group that's been marginalized or you've been actively repressed, your morale, your willingness to fight for that regime and die for that regime is probably pretty low, 
right? You're going to have grievances against the regime, okay? So you're going to be looking for opportunities to bail out of the war when you can, when the opportunities present themselves, or you can try and create those opportunities. So the pre-war marginalization, the pre-war repression is giving you the reason for why we should see desertion. From the non-cores group perspective, that regime is not legitimate. It's not seen as legitimate, and it's not seen as worth bearing the sacrifice for a regime that's not even, you know, in some cases, denying your basic humanity. So there's a, mor a morale, kind of an individual level mechanism. The second is a unit composition. Okay? As these non-core groups come into the military, okay, the military has to figure out how to deploy them. And there's a variety of different strategies it can adopt. Each of them has their costs and benefits for how you incorporate these groups within the populations. Okay? This is what's going to condition the opportunities for desertion. Whether the military tries to scramble your ethnic kin networks by blending you in with core groups, whether they let your soldiers be completely in a non-core unit and they use you for cannon fodder, whether they have core officers looking over non-core populations, states can be innovative about their strategies. That will condition the opportunities. So we have one at the individual level, one at the unit level, and that will then condition the likelihood of wartime desertion. So the core hypothesis. As we go from zero to one to two, the odds of desertion should increase. Each one in lockstep, with the twos being really bad. Okay? Qualitative clues, that's more of a quantitative side. Qualitative clues, you should see mass desertion starting first in units with a history of being marginalized or repressed. That's where the, sort of the clue would be to look for the non-core populations, how they're being treated. You should see poor pre-war morale. You should see wartime constraints. You should see leaders and military commanders having to do things that are suboptimal from an efficiency point of view to try and hold their forces in line. And I hope somebody asked me about blocking battalions, because this is a personal historical hobby horse of mine. About 20% of the uh, combatants in this data set will create specialized units to stand behind their soldiers and shoot them if they retreat. Okay? There's a use of coercion that's going on in this story, too. When you start seeing that suboptimality being built in, right, you know something's wrong in the way in which the military is trying to generate power. Because it's, from an efficiency point of view, it's incredibly inefficient to be shooting your own soldiers. Um, you should see the non-core groups, low initiative, low persistence on the battlefield. So there's a range of these behaviors, and that's trying to what those qualitative cases are trying to get at uh, in the paper. You might be thinking, okay, but there's other factors, right? Clearly, we haven't, we haven't talked about money and getting paid, and what about casualties and all that kind of good stuff. So that's all on the slide here. Um, the alternative explanations. One, material preponderance story, the stronger you are, the less desertion you should have, probably because your odds of winning are higher. So it might be tied, the stronger you are, it might be tied to your perception of victory. Right? If you think you're going to win, you're probably less likely to desert. Regime type, um, this is a favorite of regime type people. Democratic uh, soldiers don't desert. Right? Uh, they love the country, they choose their governments, um, they, you know, they, they believe the government's legitimate, so they don't desert. Turns out that's actually not true. Uh, there's lots of desertion out of de democracies, but we'll get to that. Uh, Micro-level explanations you might imagine as casualties go up, desertion starts, that sort of is intuitive. The farther you are from home, it may be that you, it's easier to desert, you get away from the state. Um, small group solidarity, this is the classic Shills and Janowitz kind of story about the, the Vermont holding together, and as those units bonds break down, desertion then kicks in. Um, I think Shills and Janowitz, uh, which is a famous article in 1948, sort of kicked off the study of cohesion and, and desertion in some ways has been horribly misread by political scientists. So somebody else, please ask me in the Q&A, because I think we've got that article totally wrong. But anyway, um, that, that's a kind of the leading explanation. If you say, why do soldiers hang together in, 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 under extreme conditions? Because they're bands of brothers, right? because they fight for their, their buddies. Right? Not for an ideology or national, they fight for their buddies. Okay? I actually don't think that argument holds in the way we think it does. 
Uh, and then the historians, uh, Hugh Strachan, terrific historian of the First World War, basically has a sort of Tolstoy's family that every uh, cohesive army hangs together uh, for the same reason, but every uh, army that falls apart falls apart for its own idiosyncratic reason. So you can't generalize. There's nothing, to, there's nothing to generalize from this story. Every army breaks uniquely. As a political scientist, we generalize all, you know, all the time, so I'm gonna say that's not actually gonna be correct. Um, but that is sort of this argument from, from the historical side. I feel like I'm bashing historians. I should also feel like I should say I'm a history undergrad, so I'm allowed to say these things about historians, okay? Uh, and most of my book is historical in nature, so um, I'm okay on that. So how do we test it? Uh, this is just the, the empirical strategy. One is the Project Mars data set. We're gonna simply look at the identity type as a variable, looking and seeing are we getting desertion, is it tracking with desertion uh, across these different time periods. This is not causal, this is not causal inference, it's just association, right? But we're seeing if the changes are associated, right? Then we can move a little bit closer to causality by matching. So you might imagine then that uh, the type twos are really different for some reason than the type zeros. So we do a matching strategy where we pull the twos and the zeros together, try and screen out the pre-war differences, and then see if desertion holds uh, in, that, in that pattern. Here, this is, uh, this is a fancy kind of two control group comparison. All we're gonna do is compare the type twos to the zeros. And that was, we should see the big change, right? The twos having lots of desertion, the zeros having not much. And then we go and do a type one plus type zero in which that case should attenuate, the size of them, the effect should attenuate a little bit because the type ones have some desertion in them. So if I'm right, you should see a little bit less of an effect when you compare, do this comparison than when you do the first comparison. That kind of gives us a sense that we're looking in the right place. And then um, the large end data set is used to find cases that are matched on a whole series of covariates and then, uh, but have different identity types and to, and to sort of screen out competing explanations. And that's Kokand and the Sultanate of Morocco. <laughs> Uh, which are not your normal cases when we think of cohesion desertion, and, and that's actually deliberate. I'm trying to push back on political science and say we need to think of a more broader, a broader range of cases. Okay, so just to the findings real quick. This is the 1800-1917 period going from the one, zero to the one to the two. This is the uh, predicted odds of desertion. Clearly it's sloping upwards. 95 confidence intervals pretty tight. So as you're getting more repressive, you go through marginalization to repression, you're getting a, a much bigger jump in the odds of wartime desertion almost the exact same pattern happens when you go in the 1918 to 2011 time period, okay? So again, moving in lockstep up from the pre-war changes, uh, pre-war identity type is predicting the um, wartime desertion in both time periods. A Little bit uh, starting a lower base in the more contemporary era, but the, the pattern is, is pretty much the same. What does this mean substantively? Uh, basically going from a zero to a two, is associated with about a 37% increase in desertion. That's the point estimate. Uh, in the 1800 uh, to 1917 period, goes up a little higher, 43% in 1918 to 2011. It's basically interpreting what those graphs are doing with a, with a bit of uncertainty around it. So it's a big jump, okay, it's a big jump. And that's controlling for all other covariates like regime type and material preponderance and distance from home and all that kind of fact, terrain, all these kind of, kind of factors, okay? It's still holding up across all those. What about other explanations? Uh, regime type and material preponderance don't seem to be tracking with wartime desertion. It's not the case that the stronger you are, the less desertion you have. It's not the case that the more democratic you are, the less desertion you have. Okay? And I can talk a little bit maybe about why those findings hold uh, in the Q&A. Civil wars, um, there are some civil wars in the data set. So unlike correlates a war which drops the civil wars, if there were two sides fighting conventionally, they're in the data set. So the American Civil War, for example, is in the data set. The Russian Civil War is in this data set. 
Civil wars are associated with desertion, but only in the 1918 era, uh, pre-1918 era, excuse me. So it's not that civil wars are driving these findings, they're happening in interstate wars too. And then war duration is associated with desertion. So the longer the war goes on, the more chance of desertion you have. Um, this is a, a kind of a dubious finding, right? So it's sort of wrapped up. Is duration causing desertion or is desertion causing duration? So you don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but typically the longer the war, the more desertion um, you have. Okay. This is the matching. So basically you go back through it again. You run the, the matching and you get almost identical uh, findings. And when you do the comparison between the type two and the one and the zero and hold those together as a group, the effect attenuates a little bit, which is what we would expect if this is being driven by pre-war identity type, okay? So again, it's, going, it's making it through the matching and it's gonna make it through the cases too. Um, this is uh, a little bit, uh, this is gonna be, I, I have five minutes left and I have a couple slides left. So this is gonna be not the overarching history of Kokan and Morocco necessarily, um, but what, the, what we did is create a program that goes back in through the data and specifies conditions on which they should match. Go find comparison combatants randomly through the data set. So I, as the researcher, can't cherry pick the cases. Okay? It identifies them for me. One of the matches that came back was Morocco, and here this is Kokan uh, in Central Asia. Uh, it comes back and says, we found these matches across these covariates. Okay, everything from the, the initial power that they had, the year of the war, the distance from capital, the regime type, that's the quality, uh, quality two scores. Did you have a standing military? Did you have a military that had different kinds of recruitment devices? Were you initiator? Did you have a democratic opponent? They're almost identical. Okay, the algorithm finds that, spec uh, specifies them, and these are coming from the Project Mars data set. Then what this allows us to do uh, is build a framework so we can then look at a series of covariates that come up out of the context that are the same as well, that are harder to test quantitatively, but we know qualitatively are important. Because the quant guided me into where the cases are similar, a lot of our qualitative evidence should also be very similar in those cases as well. So it's like you're funneling down the data. And again, you look through all of this, they're very, very similar. Everything from duration and war birth to fortifications, they both had offensive doctrines, the whole range, they're very, very similar. The difference is Kokan, which was a type two, viciously repressive towards a whole host of tribal and ethnic groups inside of society, had mass desertion. Morocco was a type zero, which had a very inclusionary kind of identity, no targeting along ethnic lines, everybody's all part of a broader community, a religiously defined community, interesting enough. Um, you get almost no desertion. In fact, you had, you had almost overactive participation, if that's a word, uh, whereas the ruler is trying to actually uh, sign a, a, a peace treaty with the Spanish, and his soldiers are still fighting to show that they, how good they are upholding the norms of the regime. He can't actually end the war. So it's the inverse of desertion. You're getting this enthusiasm rather than that. So there's 28 different covariates here that are very, very similar, except for the identity type and the observed behavior. So now the, this, the, the argument is making it through the quantitative, but it's also making it through the qualitative, more the micro fine-grained level. Um, and so just, just in conclusion then, um, just a couple points. One, I would highlight the, the role of a pre-war structural variable, right? Most of our theories don't leverage pre-war structural theories. Uh, most of them are, again, at the battlefield, which is really hard to do empirical research because the endogeneity of all these factors is driving it. So here it's looking and saying military inequality, this matters. Um, this, I would argue, needs, 
illustrates the need to expand past things like loss exchange ratios to include cohesion in our notions of military effectiveness. Not only in a theoretical level, but since the United States is around the world rebuilding militaries, it would be a really good idea to figure out which militaries are most prone to break and which are not. So we're seeing this in Afghanistan and we're seeing this in Iraq now, obviously multiple times. Um, this also suggests the importance of the new Project Mars data set. Almost every uh, explanation we have that was in the literature doesn't survive the new data. Uh, and so uh, I think, frankly, we've built a lot of our theories on a pretty, pretty narrow empirical base. And the idea of widening that out, you should see findings being challenged. And I think this is going to challenge a lot of different findings. And they're not just on desertion. Um, and the paper and the, and the project is trying to create a framework for nesting qualitative and quantitative. It drives me nuts when people say that they're a quantitative scholar or a qualitative scholar. Why choose? Right? Build a framework that lets you use both. And in this case, the matching is letting me do both, right? the quantitative and the qualitative case selection. Um, and then just some questions that come out of this. We didn't talk about the timing of mass desertion. Right? So when does it occur in a war? Or what, you know, what happens? Who, who breaks first in terms of the sequence? There's this notion of frailties of mass desertion. Some states break a lot, some don't break at all, some break once. What's explaining the frailties in there? And then the big question is, does this actually matter for anything? Right? Does this actually matter for war outcomes? So if you have mass desertion, do you lose your wars? Okay? Or does this not scale up and states can muddle through even though they're losing at least 10% of the soldiers uh, through desertion? Right? So it's kind of an open uh, question, which I have some answers on. But I will stop right there because my 35 is up. And uh, take questions? Terrific. Yeah. Uh, you want me to keep the cue? Yeah, however you want to do it. It's your, your room, so. Oh. OK, uh, then I'll keep the cue. Uh, let's try to uh, start out with a uh, undergraduate who's, uh, uh, to ask cool. the first question. There's no undergraduate <laughs> that wants to answer the first or ask the first question. Uh, the faculty and the postdocs are uh, lining up, so uh -uh. speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, okay, Kate. <laughs> All right, so I have two questions. Um, the first one deals with uh, why you chose ethnicity to define core versus non-core, and I'm wondering why you selected that one as opposed to, say, um, class status or socioeconomic background or something like that. Yeah. Um, particularly in, in how, say, Huntington defines professional versus non-professional militaries. Uh, my second question deals with your alternative explanations, and I'm wondering why you didn't control for all volunteer versus conscription forces. Great, great questions. Uh, can I answer? Yes. Oh, that's it, yeah. Um, well, I, don't, I don't know if we get a bunch, and then, uh, okay. Um, so I take the second one first. Um, so I do. So uh, it's in, actually in the, um, the regressions that we see. Uh, and then actually it's in the cases. So uh, one of the things that we had to do, and this was the nightmare of the Project Mars data set, is the second we brought in the non-cow combatants, we had no data for anything. <laughs> so one of the things we did is we went back and said, how did you recruit? Um, and in various channels. And so it starts out being just six different channels of recruitment. And if you have more than, if you have two or more, you become a composite army. And then volunteer is one of the channels in. And if you had a, a volunteer force, we have a dummy for that, so you can, you can kind of see that as well. Um, so it is, it is in the data, uh, and, and it's not popping as being statistically significant. Um, now, be a little bit careful in there, because there's a lot less volunteer armies than there are, or certainly purely volunteer armies, right, than there are other ones. Um, what starts getting interesting is when you have composite ones that come in, and they start breaking along the lines of recruitment. Um, now, that could be an arrival explanation to me. 
It could also be uh, complementary if the forms of recruitment are actually sitting on top of ethnicity and they're recruiting different ethnic groups differently in, right? Um, so which leads to the second question, which is a great question. So um, in, my, in my ambition, I started the project saying, this is about categories of membership and, and categories of identity and class matters and ethnicity matters and race matters and religion matters and let's put gender in too. Right. And, and then I was like, oh my, oh my, I can't do all this. Um, and so I, just, just in terms of the coding of it all. Um, and so I chose ethnicity in part because it seems like, uh, in some cases, the most likely case for cleavages mattering, right? In, in a couple of ways. One, ethnic networks are strong and they should be able to survive a socialization, right? If they can't, so being inside the military, for example, right? That's one of the things where this sort of pushes back on the socialization literature. When the military tries to socialize, the, kin, the ethnic kid networks push back and it reinforces their group identity. It doesn't subordinate it, it, it reinforces it. Ethnicity is very strong and very durable. Uh, I think it is anyway. And so that was kind of like the natural point where I could say, I can see a group, I can see violence or marginalization being targeted that way. So clearly the states think like that. And I think the ethnicity is strong enough to survive socialization pressures. And so that's kind of where I put it. Now, the back of the book says, now that I've done this for ethnicity, we should go and do these for these outer categories of membership. The one thing I would say is, be sort of truth in data, right? Ethnicity maps onto lots of cleavages, right? And that's in partly why I like it, because it does tackle class. It does clearly overlap with race. And in fact, most of our, you know, we have like racial groups that are defined that way. Um, and so there are these different sort of overlaps in it, like the Kulaks, right, in, in Russia, right, in the Soviet Union. That is a class-based distinction, but it happened to be that most of the Kulaks were Ukrainian. Right? And so that matters too. And so, so I, yes, I think we could do a lot more with this, um, but for the first sort of step, it was ethnicity, which allows me to get some, a big chunk of it and then cheat and get a little bit more on class and things like that. Great, Asia? Hey, thank you. This is a, a really terrific project. Um, I've kind of a set of uh, empirical questions that should be easy for you to answer. Okay. Um, participation and then a, a step back and framing question that might feel further. So the empirical questions are, um, I'm curious about what the universe of cases is for Project Mars. You talk about, you talk about that in page 81 of the paper. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the implication of your argument, or one, two implications of your argument, are that the deserter should be from the discriminated against ethnic group. But that's not being tested in the most of the, at least the quantitative data that you presented here. Um, and then you also had some interesting discussions about unit level variables, the composition of community sets on the front end. And you also, I just wanted to ask for some follow through on that. Yeah, so absolutely. Empirical questions. But then here's my bigger framing question, which is, can you talk a little bit about why the focus on conventional war? Um, yeah. And in particular, but I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're, you're defining conventional war in terms of both sides have to be using conventional um, strategies. And, uh, so I'm curious uh, what intuitions you might have about a conflict that's a counterinsurgency um, yeah. you know, for, uh -huh. for either side and how, uh, how desertion might work in that context. Yeah, um, so so great questions. Um, I, oh, I have some slides. A little bit for Project Mars. Um, 
So let me just, uh, oh, there's the conventional war. So that's, that's the definition. That's the sort of domain space there. But you're right. It is very much, you have to have uh, conventional forces on both sides. Uh, and so we had coding criteria for where you, we had a coding criteria for where you're a state. And then we had coding criteria for where you're fighting conventionally, too. So we had the two. Uh, we, we dropped the cow having to be recognized by London and Paris, which sort of opens up all these other cases. Yeah, I know, I know you would. I know. We have, like, preaching to the... Um, and there's the combatant properties here as well, right? So there's no diplomatic recognition. Firearm, you had to have a firearm-equipped army. That was sort of the requirement. Although it didn't have to be all firearm-equipped, but, but most. But let me just, um, this is the sort of total with Cal 4.0 in terms of what the domain space looks like um, by observations, by the unique combatants, and by war. So it, it's a lot bigger um, because it's basically... A whole series of wars that were in the intrastate or other sort of pools of cow, but then other ones that were just like often two non-cow countries fighting each other, but because they weren't recognized, didn't so, come in. So this 95 is that interstate wars, or is it is it extra systemic? No, that's that's just the intra interstate war data so set. I think it would be interesting actually for this table if you would if you said you know cow interstate and then you know, cow all. Oh yeah, everything in cow. Okay, yeah, yeah you kind of have a sense of what the Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. I could do that easy. Uh, let me just um, this is the this is the plotting the first battle of each war, just so we can kind of see. Um, and uh, the reds, the red dots are the ones that are not in cow. Uh, and again, that's the interstate one. But you can see, so like in terms of domain, like Asia suddenly pops into relief. Central Asia pops into relief. Africa pops into relief. The coverage is pretty close to Europe. Uh, in, in, in Europe, it's pretty close to cow, but not exactly right. Um, so, yeah, so I can clearly do that with the other data set. But my question about the universe of cases is potentially, I mean, I think it answered a little bit, but I think it would be helpful to say, like, this is what we were trying to conclude. Yeah. You know, up front, like, this is our criteria for a war. Yeah, so, so this is the trick with the, the paper. So, so I've been, this is where the politics of this thing come in, right? So I, I want to write a standalone piece that's not a data article, right? And the, so the pushback is this, like, this is getting too data-y. And then I can throw it in the appendix. And then the, pub the book publisher is like, why are you sticking all that good stuff online? You should be selling the book. Put it back in the book. So then it's kind of like this chicken and egg. I, I agree. It's got to get in somewhere. Uh, and, it's, and it clearly is not getting in enough here. I think that's right. Um, but that, um, so I, I take the point. Um, are, am I testing the ethnic soldiers leaving? Not in this one, but I have it. So we went back through and said, OK, now that we have all the ones in the desertion column, who's deserting? So we get the sequence out. So I can rerun it with a more restricted set. It says, are these ethnic ones or not ethnic ones? So the argument would be um, there's a sequence involved that the non-core breaks first. Doesn't necessarily mean that the core is going to hold. Um, the core may see the non-core go and then say, oh, forget this, we're going to lose. And then they're going to see the, the shift, the probability of war shifting. But it's not an identity-based one. It's more calculations of war-based one um, that's, that's at work. And then, um, and then why, why the conventional wars? So, um, because everybody's on the Civil War side right now, and the field is really open over there, I think. So, I mean, sort of inside pool. I probably review now, or asked to review, 60 articles a year, and I would say 58 of them are Civil War micro-level stuff. Completely saturated. Absolutely saturated. And for graduate students and postdocs, like, where, where's the field right now in terms of, like, Where's all the good opportunities? It's not on the Civil War side. It's not the insurgency side. It's on the conventional war side. Think of what we've done in terms of data collecting on the Civil War side. Massive improvements. Every, there's all these cross-national data sets. What do we got on the other side? Not much. We're still anchored into Cal. 
more or less, right? I mean, there's, there's ones coming in Creo and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot more room to run if you have the Civil War sensibilities and methods and go back into the conventional war side. So it's, it's partly I think it's interesting, but partly I think it's understudied. Uh, in particular, given the size of some of these wars, they dwarf anything we see in the Civil War side. The Russian Civil War, I mean, the, well, the Russian Civil War, but the um, Eastern Front, right? You could fit almost every Civil War since 1945 inside the Eastern Front. Yeah, I know. So I was given the honest answer for the yeah, and then but but that's I mean that's how the book is framed. I wouldn't say like, but I I do th believe that that we need to pull over to the, the conventional war. It's not going away. I have a couple of alternative explanations that I'm curious about that would explain the regression findings. Um, and then a question about relative power and which things that well. Um, the first is that, um, so, so say states that marginalize ethnic groups or repress their ethnic groups, um, seems likely to me that these are also the ones who are going to be devoting fewer resources to the training of those ethnic groups, um, to the protection of those ethnic groups, to um, paying those ethnic groups. Yeah. So these are these are the groups that are least likely to get any of the benefits of war um, and yeah. are least likely to be to be well trained and have that kind of strong socialization. And so this lack of effort the state puts in to good soldiers because these these groups they're obviously going to trust these ethnic groups because they're not going to give them the best of training they're not going yeah. to give them the best training um, and so I, I feel like that would explain the findings here um, do you have other texts or something else in the book that looks at that um, the other is just a pure rational choice explanation for these rational factors these are also the groups that are less likely to get paid and so the cost benefit analysis is deserting and becoming permanent um, is higher when your prospects of future war-torn glory are um, diminished. Um, and then on on relative power, um, so you, my understanding is that you code it based upon kind of battlefield sizes. Yes. Do you look at military expenditures at all? How much how much do you spend on your military? So like for the Soviet Union, for example. Yeah. You know, Later on in the Cold War, they're spending a lot on their military, but even in World War II, I mean, these are yeah. these are not guys who are who are getting more pay, and it's not you know particularly well-funded ventures, just massive amounts of food. Um, and so I think that there's there's a, a distinction there. And have you guys thought about that or how to how to yeah, um, yeah, great questions. Uh, so on the relative power, so what we did is uh, there's a couple things. Uh, it's I didn't like cow. <laughs> you can probably kind of tell that by now. Um, so that's the six-year effort. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So you know, and they come to realize it's not that bad. Um, but uh, you know, it has all these measures of industrial power, right? You know, all these pig iron production. It never says anything about any of the soldiers that ever get to the battlefield. You have no idea how many soldiers they sent, or like what power actually meant, right? So, and in Britain, this is enormous power, but it was scratching to get our armies in Africa from volunteers and, and people that could recruit in country. Like, it didn't make any sense. So, these are um, relative force ratios uh, at the initial point of collision, and then also overall, so how many could you mobilize? But there is nothing in, along the lines of like, how much should you spend? And that is uh, just a function of data. Um, there's just no way we could get that. I mean, 
I mean, I, you know, there's a couple of combatants in this data set. My favorite is the Emirate of Bukhara uh, in Central Asia, where we got the population estimate for the time period, uh, actually it was right before the war, uh, from a British explorer who went, because this is what the British guys did back then, and they went and hung out in Bukhara, and the guy walked around Bukhara, and they counted how big it was and counted how many people were there and how many camels were in the marketplace and things like that. So I mean, imagine like the primary documents were pulling the post. So like the military expenditure thing, I'd love to have it, love to have it. Uh, and as a ratio of how much you're spending per soldier, right? kind of a human capital story, it'd be amazing, just didn't have it, yeah, just didn't have it. Um, uh, the other one on the, uh, on the pay and the training, I think, I think these are all downstream consequences of actually privileging certain ethnic groups over others. So I wouldn't necessarily see this as, um, as competing to my story. I would actually say that this is where I think, this is exactly what you would see, right? You would see shirking on the training. The first people to not get paid are gonna be your non-core groups, right? Uh, and so it, it's flowing from the ethnic construction of like who's a citizen and not. But the mechanism is different. I mean, the, the argument that you propose here is kind of an ethnic grievance argument. That the, the, the regime is illegitimate and therefore the grievance is against the regime rather than kind of a yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's fair, but I, I think part of it, it could be wrapped up in there. You, you're aggrieved at the state because you're not getting paid by it, but you see others. I mean, so there's a, a wonderful example um, from, the, uh, from the modest state in the 1880s, where when he comes up to power, his successor, after Mahdi dies, the successor comes in and imposes a way of paying this completely long ethnic criteria. Right? He says, like, Arabs in my army get this much, you guys are going to get this much, you guys are going to get this much. And they hated it. They hated it. But it was purely ethnically defined. And so there, I mean, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure ethnicity and rationality are pointing in different directions, right? Because you'd be saying, well, I'm, I'm getting paid way less than these other guys, and I'm upset. That's a form of the grievance. So, so I'm not sure, I guess I'm not seeing the daylight necessarily between this. I, I would see more of a daylight as if there was the rational choice had no considerations of ethnicity. Like it was just like I'm not getting paid and I'm out. Um, but if you're not getting paid because you're a certain kind of person, right, like an ethnic group, that to me is more of an ethnic story. I would say. Because they went home because they were not getting paid. Not getting paid, or I mean, what's the explanation there? Because that group is pretty uniform when it comes to ethnicity. Yes. So yes. why, why do they experience compensation? Yeah, so uh, I, how much time do we have? Can we do the Confederate States of America? Because um, <laughs> this, this is a fascinating case. And, and part of it is, I mean, part of it, I, I think it's a trap question because there's not one reason. There's, there's multiple reasons why they did it. Um, but, um, but actually, part of the, well, I'll do it. Uh, uh, this will be a long conversation. Um, so part okay, of it. Yes, she's going to oh, oh, then, okay, can we, can we talk again? Yes. Yeah, but, uh, we'll relive the Civil War over there. Okay, okay, because it, it's a fascinating case, and the, the documentation is amazing for that case, actually. Okay, i got to insert some gender diversity into this discussion. Oh, yeah? Being dominated by the matriarchy here. <laughs> yeah, um, great talk. Thank you very much. A um, couple questions. One, you argued that democracy actually didn't account for much which is a very surprising finding to me because you'd expect yes. oppression would be much less in a democratic society. So I'm wondering how you explain that apparent and huge puzzle on uh, yeah. intuition supports that. And second, you say you are arguing against many other arguments about military effectiveness. I actually didn't hear much about how 
your desertion scores actually affect the outcome of the war itself? You claim, and it makes sense, yeah. that it would be in some sort of proxy for it, but you didn't really complete the argument. So I'm wondering if you could complete the argument. Uh, absolutely. Um, so they're both great questions. And so the, the democracy finding to me, or non-finding to me, is the most surprising one. Uh, this is one I would have thought, you know, instantly we're going to see this. So why why don't we see this? Uh, and I should caveat this: there is a little bit, there is a little bit of more strength in the post forty five era, um, but it's a function of the democracies in the data set. So we're very used to when we do our quantitative analyses, we're running it on a subset of democracies that are stable and strong. Um, Project Mars doesn't do that. Project Mars allows for weak democracies to come into the data set that are struggling just to survive. So uh, on the one hand, they are weaker than a lot most. And so it's not that we're seeing the strong ones and they're not going to have desertion because they can pay their soldiers better or whatever reasons, right? You're getting the weak ones come in. But there are also democracies in the data set that do actively repress ethnic minorities in their groups as part of a nation-building exercise. Uh, and, there's, and so there's enough of them in the data set. There's enough weak ones in the data set. And there's enough that are marginalizing along ethnic or, or actually repressing along ethnic lines that are actually pulling down that finding. So if you subset this, um, you know, if you just did said like, give me the strongest ones, uh, they they typically don't have desertion in the post forty five era. But even before that, the United States has had desertion problems, the UK has had desertion problems, and so there aren't that many democracies overall. So it's a combination of not being that many democracies, a new data set list of democracies, and some democracies that are repressing and marginalizing. That's driving that finding down. Um, and so it's not necessarily one answer. It's sort of partly the data composition and partly there are ones that are repressing actively um, from the nationalizing and things like that. The outcomes question, I'm afraid. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I've got it with me. <laughs> I'm going to just, come on. Cross-national regressions, timing. I did some time and stuff. I represented these cases. Oh, I just got the maps with me. I didn't bring it. OK. so. So, okay, so this is a big tug of war between uh, myself and another scholar in the field who says, this is a book about battlefield effectiveness. Wars have outcomes for lots of reasons, not just your battlefield effectiveness. You can't test a theory of battlefield effectiveness explaining outcomes. You just can't do it. I think that's wrong because it seems something that's happening on the battlefield should clearly have some ties to the outcomes. It's not the only factor, but it should matter. Otherwise, why are we fighting, right? Um, and so it should scale up. So. If you take the data set and you look at war outcomes across this time period, and you take desertion, you take defection, so your soldiers join the other side, and you take the use of violence against your own soldiers in these blocking detachments, the, things that drop, the thing that drops your probability of winning the most is mass desertion. This is clearly associated with defeat. And I'm saying causing defeat, but it is clearly associated with defeat, much more so than defection. Defection sees something that uh, armies can, for some reason, survive. And the blocking detachments actually seem to improve your odds of winning a little bit because they're holding your forces in, in line. Um, but, but desertion is, is disastrous for war outcomes. It's also, war comes to find is did you win or not? But also war comes to find is did your leader get overthrown violently? And also did your, did your state hold together as a territorial unit? Or did it survive? And desertion is negatively correlated with all three of those things. So, it's, so that's kind of why this paper is, I hive this out of the data set because it's got that big finding to the war. Um, I just there's so much going on in this paper. I'm not sure I can do it, um, but there's a chapter in it. Yeah. Okay, thanks, great question. Uh, thank you, Jason, for the great talk. I have two uh, <laughs> questions. Um, first, uh, while reading the paper and also listening to the uh, presentation, the biggest question I have is why um, the puzzle I had is yeah. if you're if you're one of these type two societies, 
why would you ever let these groups ever into your military? I love it. Yes. Um, it does seem doesn't make, and I had it's my this is my answer to this. I'm curious what you think. Um, yeah. This opens up a possible indigeneity problem, so that's why I was thinking about it. Okay. Um, so just think about Harris Miles's book on kind of politics and nation building. That um, when you're more war prone, that's when you're less likely to let certain groups become a part of your nation's yeah. national identity. So I'm curious if it's something kind of the war proneness at the beginning stratifies your society in constructing your identity. And then that kind of play comes home to roost when you actually get into that war. Yeah. Um, and is that then kind of the fact that you have to let these groups into your military? Is that an indicator of a problem to begin with? You're probably going to lose if you have to rely on these groups. Um, and also, an interesting way to test this then going on that would be um, looking if you could break down going to Nietzsche's point, kind of who's in these composite groups that you have coded. Uh, so, um, are the people being drafted? The people from this group are they being drafted late? And it's kind of an indicator the war is going bad for you. You have to draft the people you really don't like into your military. So that's kind of the first question. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Goes around the circle. And second, just because you were interested in blocking formation, um, I'd be curious, kind of just in general, um, what are the strategies states use once they start seeing these desertions? Like, what makes you have a more effective blocking formation? Do you have any insight on kind of what makes these states actually be able to? Um, is a higher level of state capacity that makes you be able to do this better? Um, or what in general makes, you know, a good NKVD kind of blocking formation pop-up? Yeah. If you can have a good one, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let me just take the second one first and then roll backwards. Um, so blocking formations are fascinating, in part because most of our theory is not about coercion. But these soldiers are not often serving willingly, right? They're being forced to fight, and um, which actually goes partly to your first question, right? That um, They're actually being dragooned in there. Um, the, the blocking detachments are an extreme form of this, but we see lots of earlier uh, adaptations by the militaries on, in the field. So, uh, for example, some militaries will mine known desertion routes, so they pin their own soldiers in. Often what happens is your cavalry, which is designed to be your reconnaissance, right, your eyes forward or, or screening operations, becomes pulled to the rear, and you use your cavalry as an overwatch position on your own soldiers. Um, you stop night marching. Night, nights are bad. If your soldiers desert, you stop the night marching. And, and more generally, what starts happening is you see the tactics and your operational sophistication get a lot uh, worse. So um, you start seeing militaries privileging mass formation assaults, right, these sort of human wave type things, because it's easier to keep command and control. You pin everybody in and push them forward. None of this double envelopment type stuff and combined art, right, you push them forward. So you see the militaries adapting on the fly. And, and the book really pushes hard on this notion that there's a trade-off between combat power and cohesion. And type twos in particular are going to have to force to sacrifice one or the other. So they sacrifice combat power. They pull down the efficiency of their soldiers to hold the cohesion together. Blocking, so the blocking units are, are a sort of sort of the tip of the iceberg, but there's all these other strategies you can do. That's why I come back to the Shields and Janowitz piece. Shields and Janowitz, I think, has been misread. Everyone argues that this is about primary group bonds, right? And that the Germans held together until those group bonds were broken, and then they deserted. If you look what the Nazis were doing to hold their own soldiers in line, they were the ones mining the escape routes, for example, right? They were the ones shooting their own soldiers. And so that part of the coercion of the Wehrmacht against its own soldiers, it's been sort of written out of our histories, right? There's this incredibly lethal elite force. Everybody fought to the last man. No, it's not true. Actually, there was a lot of cohesion, even in the Shields and Janowitz, even in those interviews, they picked up coercion. So I, I want to open up this box and say, we need to be talking a lot more about this. Um, so, and I can definitely talk a lot more about that. Um, the, the first question is a great one, because I love this. Like, why would you ever do this, right? And so uh, I, I would twist it a little bit on Harris's, uh, Harris's work, which is terrific. Um, I would say what I'm, what the danger is is anticipatory effects, right? You think you're going to fight 
you're going to then rig your military to go fight in that way that you need to fight. And so it's the anticipated con conflict that's then directing your identity type so that it becomes a dodge. So I don't think that's what's going on uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that uh, you may think you're going to do that, but the sort of pragmatics of pulling out non-corp uh, soldiers from your ranks is very, very difficult, particularly if they're large. Uh, and, and there are militaries that are looking at like a huge chunk of their population of their army couldn't serve if they pulled them out. So they don't have a choice. They're stuck anyway, right? When you start getting down to the one, the two, the three percent of the population, okay, then you got more choice. But not when it's 55 percent, or not when it's 80 percent in some of these cases, right? So you can't, you just can't physically do it. But the other thing, I think we got to put our, our Machiavellian hats on a little bit more, right? You would not want to exclude these if you were a type two or even a type one, because you're going to get the non-core to fight for the core, right? That non-core is going to bleed out for you, not willingly, but because of force to do it, right? There's a political incentive for you to use those soldiers and safeguard your own core soldiers. So you're basically going to use a foreign battlefield to prosecute your own internal identity wars, right? Your identity projects, and have the other side do it. And there's wonderful, uh, not wonderful, but there's there's clear documentation, like for Saddam Hussein, for example, and all this, the documents we captured of him sitting there rigging his formation so the Shia would go first and the Sunni would be in the back, protected, right? He's were they militarily effective? No, because they didn't want to fight, they didn't want to be there, but it was enough to fight the attritional war he wanted to do and safeguard the Sunni in the war. Militarily suboptimal, politically, it makes sense. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of these armies pulling them out, um, historically. Thanks. Jihei? Um, actually, I had a question about regime type, but it was very similar to one of Stan's questions. So I'm not sure if I could state the question. Well, do you think he answered it? Yeah, well, that's the real question, yeah. In, in a way, I think he answered it. So, so okay, I'll, I'll ask you the question, yeah. and you can you know, decide if you want to answer it again. Um, so uh, your analysis basically discounts regime type as, as an explanation, right? Um, but when I first uh, read the description of different types of identity projects, right, uh, type 0, 1, 2, um, my first instinct was that you know, democracies should be more inclined to take on type one um, projects as opposed to type one or uh, type zero projects as opposed to type one or two. So why, um, but then you in the end discounts regime type as an explanation. So yeah, and, yeah, no, I, and I think it's a great question. And I, I say say two things. One, I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to say I necessarily I'm discounting regime type explanations. I am I am discounting how polity for counts regime type, and I know I'm in the home of VDEM here and, and other democracies. There's other ways we can do this. And so one of the things we're actually going back now through is uh, applying the Weeks and Gettys regime type distinctions backwards to the entire data set so we can get a more sort of nuanced, because right now, like these are minus sevens and minus sixes, and there's not a lot of you know, con context in there. So I don't want to say I discount it. Um, and, and I think you're generally right. When you type zeros, you would imagine would be democracies, and the type twos are Stalin, um, except historically, the correlation between regime type and identity type is actually nowhere near as strong as we might think. And you can go back and historically and just think of like, democracies that have repressed. You don't have to go very far from home, right, to, you know, to think of a United States, classic example, right, has excluded or restricted military service until the Korean War, right? Uh, and, you know, have Poland and Czechoslovakia in the 1920s have nationalizing visions that are brutal towards ethnic minorities in, in, their, in their midst, right? Um, 
you shockingly go back to the Confederate States of America, I can't ever escape it. Um, Confederate States of America, by the polity four criteria, is a democracy, right? That is a slave-holding state, right? So, so once you start actually digging through the cases, um, that, that sort of automatic correlation really starts beginning to break down a lot. Um, I think where it starts tracking is actually in, in our most recent era. It's unlikely to have democracies that are, that are you know, type twos. It's not, however, unusual to have them as type ones. India today still excludes or restricts on a lot of ethnic uh, criteria. Uh, United States now right, is going through a, a big conversation about non-core groups and who's a non-core group right now, right? And military service could follow from that. So I think part of it is even though you're a democracy and even though you're type zero, you may not stay that way. Okay, uh, I'm gonna recognize myself. Cool. Very you're very patient, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I'm not going to count this as one of my questions because I'm endorsing something Nisha said. So I'm okay. riding on her uh, coattails. So okay. <clears throat> but I, I did find your your argument about uh, the insufficiency of how uh, a little bit unclear because I, I you okay. know, when when Nisha got you to put up that slide and it, it was clear that um, you were just counting the cow uh, systemic wars, you know then. Seems like your your discussion at the beginning of the paper is the problem with cow is it misses a lot of wars. Yeah. But if you bring the uh, extra systemic wars in, there's going to be a lot more. Now whether that still covers the waterfront or not, yeah. I'm not sure. But I actually think the argument you're really making is a different one. That you've got different variables that cow doesn't yes. include. And so I'm you know thinking back to. Uh, my old days of button heads with uh, uh, Donnie Ryder and Al Stam, yeah. and their use uh, of the uh, hero data set, yeah. which covers a lot of stuff, or they, they brought in because it covers a lot of stuff they were interested in that the cow data set didn't have. Yes. So I'd endorse um, hmm. Nisha's point that you, you want to be a little bit clearer about exactly what the, uh, the value added is. Okay. But that's so, her question. It, it doesn't count. Words. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I had three um, questions. One is conceptual. What's the difference between an identity project and nationalism? There's a point in the paper mm. where you suggested that they, they were distinct, but in looking at it, I, um, I couldn't uh, figure it out in my own mind. It may just be a failure of imagination on my part. Um, the second question is one of logic. Um, and uh, this is on page eight, when you're talking about military inequality. And you're actually saying there's two elements to it. One is um, internal to the military. If you don't let uh, certain groups fully participate, they're gonna get cheesed off. Um, and then there's also the societal argument, which is uh, if you use the military uh, against uh, other groups in society. Now, number two made perfect sense, mm -hmm. but the logic of number one, uh, I was a little unclear about. You're, you're assuming uh, that uh, people want full military participation. I'm not sure empirically, though, that that always mm -hmm. holds. For example, mm -hmm. in the United States military, African-Americans are overrepresented uh, based on their percentage of the population. Uh, but the dirty secret is, is they're, they're underrepresented in terms of the combat arms. Mm. They're primarily in combat support, combat service support. 
And this is something uh, that's uh, pretty clearly a choice that African Americans mm. uh, are making. Maybe some of them are getting tracked into that, but mm -hmm. you know, everything I know suggests that this is a choice people are making. Um, and so, you know, there's some cases where the logic clearly operates. So, for example, the national religious uh, are uh, moving in or encroaching on the combat arms and the IDF, which had previously been yeah. a preserve of the uh, secular uh, Ashkenazi elite. But it seems to me one could tell a story of a lot of groups, particularly marginal groups, that if they had to serve, they would not want to serve in the uh, in the combat arms. Uh, so that's point two. Okay. Point three um, on the uh, case studies. Um, I thought after reading the case studies that they seemed more like a correlational uh, description hmm. than real process tracing. And, and the way you have it structured, you have the identity project and you have the desertion. But particularly when you put your slide up about the uh, mechanisms, the moral grievances, and the unit composition, yeah. those are sort of hard to see in the cases. And hmm. the, the thing, though, that I was really thinking about is what's the evidence that you would really want to see um, to show these mechanisms in operation? And Kerry's point about um, micro-level uh, dynamics led me to think, well, I'd like to see quotes from soldiers in these armies yeah. saying, you know, uh, uh, I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't stick with the, uh, you yeah. know, with the unit because, you know, these bastards have been oppressing us all along and not letting us serve as general officers. And when push came to shove, I was out of there. Yeah. And conversely, this would be a harder one for your, uh, you know, for your Moroccan case, to get some testimony of people, you know, saying uh, what you'd want to say the opposite of that, saying, boy, you know, I was happy to keep kicking the Spanish keister yeah. um, because, uh, you know, the Sultan was such a great guy and he treated us so well. That's right. Uh, that may be un <clears throat> unrealistic um, to... Uh, ask you to provide, but I, I do think that there's a, a bit of a, I'm describing the independent variable and the value yeah. on it, and then I'm describing the dependent variable, and the precise causal mechanisms seem less well-developed, okay. yeah. is my impression. It's a, uh, can I jump? That's it? Oh, yeah, okay, no, it's good. Um, so I'm just in the last part, let's start, start there. I mean, it's a great, great point. So one of the things I go back and forth on this is, um, do I have the right cases to make this case? If this is like my standalone paper, right, um, for the book, can, am I really nailing down the process tracing aspect of this? I mean, and again, doing it within the constraints of an article, that's an issue, but the part of it is just, do I have the right pieces of evidence? And the historiography is weaker, certainly here, than my other cases in the book, right? And, and um, you know, fortunately, I can read both Spanish and Russian, um, and, and the Persian I can do too. Um, so. Well, that puts me in my place. No, I uh, know, but no, no, but but as I was gonna say, but there isn't, but there isn't what you want. That's the trick. That's the trick. So, you know, and because both societies are um, oral tradition societies, there aren't memoirs from soldiers, right? And and to the extent that we're getting the views of the other side, so to speak, right? You are getting Spanish journalists or French journalists, and you're getting Russian 
Russians have written scads of this stuff. It's amazing. These you know, tomes of this stuff. Um, this, the other side is almost silent. And, and so that kind of evidence, I mean, I, I can certainly, I certainly have some. I don't know if I have enough to actually answer this criticism because I think it's a valid one. I mean, it's just, it's sort of the evidentiary record. This is the problem. This is sort of the dark side of letting an algorithm choose your cases for you is that it is going to push you into places that the evidentiary record is weak. I mean, there's a reason why all of our theories keep doing World War I, World War I and World War II. It's the same reason I don't like that, but it's the same reason, I mean, there's a huge record there and all the documents are there and you just go to the library and get them. You know, this I'm starting to figure out, like, what does the soft sign in Slavonic Russian mean and how is this changing the word? Like, and I'm still not getting the soldier's view. So, so part of me says this is not the right case to do this. Partly I'm worried I send this out to a journal and the journal goes, Kokand in Morocco, are you serious? Like, what? Like, not a chance. Tell me about World War I. Tell me about World War II. Tell me about the Tsarist Russia falling apart. But don't tell me about Kokan. I don't even know where that is. Like, you know, I, like, I just worry that's that pushback. So, so this, is, this is good feedback for the chapter that this is based on, but also for how, how I present this. And I think that also goes to your prior question, which is Nisha's question, too, about Cal. Um, and I could certainly um, show with the extra systemic one. So the extra systemic one is a whole grab bag of different kinds of fighting styles. And so the thing that the book tries to do is say, this is a unified data set of everybody fighting conventionally. And some of those are in the extra systemic ones. Um, some of the ones are in the interstate ones. Uh, and some of them are not there at all. So maybe what I should do is go back and say, and the data set's backwards compatible, so you could run it with just the interstate ones. But I could go back and put e extra systemic in there, right, code it that way, and then also have it and say, are you in one of the two? And then, and then see which ones are still standing out. But there's still a ton that are not. And I like this answer better of the one that you gave me, which is there's just a whole host of combatant traits that are not in cow. Um, and that's partly what we're seeing now is we're just seeing different measures of power, different measures of you know all these regime type or, or recruitment strategies. So I think part of that is positioning and partly thinking about how to talk to Cal. Because when I started this project, I hated Cal. I was like, I'm going to take Cal down. And now, you know, and I wrote the book, um, the first version of the manuscript. Everybody's like, we don't care about Cal. Like, don't. That's not what you want to pivot. You want to talk about your story. Talk about you know you're talking about the argument talk about like nobody cared I was like coming I had this I had a literally had a section called cow tipping <laughs> come on that's funny right I mean seriously uh, you know I told you this guy there you go so there you go so I had this cow tipping and, and you know and people were like whoa like time out no no you can't do that you can't do that you know like half the field's built on cow and and that we don't care about this um you know stam read it and said said God, this is the most boring thing I've ever read. This reads like a peace science paper. So yeah, so I was like, well, all right, you don't even have to be that harsh about it. But so, so maybe there is this positioning thing I need to I think there. So I, I take the point. Um, and really quickly, I know we we'll probably run out of time. Is identity the same thing as nationalism? I don't think so. So what I want to do is leave open the space for other kinds of collective notions of community to be involved. And so. When I look at, well, both Kokand and Morocco, for example, I don't think those are nationalism. I think those are as religiously motivated communities um, that are sort of, it, there's a, a religiously defined community. And you know, both of them are using the language of jihad and things like that, but the, the notion of who's in and who's not, it, it's, there's, uh, nationalism, first of all, seems really early for that time period, but also um, it's much more of a religious construct notion. So I want to just leave space for that. But in certain time periods, absolutely, this is nationalism, absolutely. Okay, uh, Seok Jun, and then would you carry the last two fingers? Oh, a two finger. Thank you for presenting your paper. This was very, very interesting. Thank you. Um, 
you are using transactional data, and um, I was wondering whether you had an opportunity to see the variance of certain fancy certain plates or just kind of using scripts. Um, and I think that will um, that might give you a stronger support for your argument. One of the cases that I've heard, one of the cases that I've heard you was the Mongol Empire in thirteenth and fourteenth century. Okay. Um, I my sense is that the the inequality, the military inequality level, was maintained relatively high during the whole empire. I I, I guess. Okay. But the, this, I I was curious how the mass research plates would change, it, particularly because the world outcomes would be totally different through the whole empire yeah. because it had good times and bad times. Um, if it hadn't, if if it had not good times, it could not. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was wondering um, how those level of um, <laughs> military inequality changes across um, within a state, uh, I see. for example, a Mongol Empire. Okay. Um, and how that affects the world outcomes. And world outcomes too. Uh, great questions. Uh, when, when you speak about the rates of desertion, so you're not talking about the incidents like the zero one. Are you talking about the rates like how many of the soldiers deserted? Uh, no, just um, or just any like, incidents of it, like did it happen or not? Um, just the the tendon therapy you use. Okay, so you, you just the incidents, yeah. Because yeah. um, I was thinking that doing the cross section, the thing would be interesting too is also trying to explain the variance in how many soldiers deserted. So we actually have estimates of how many deserted, not just did it hit the ten percent or not. They have that threshold. Um, so I haven't done. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what I would what I what we're looking for here. So if we're looking at just the same combatants over time and this notion of frailties, maybe you'd see it over and over and over again. Uh, you're, you would be more convinced if the um, military inequality was staying the same, basically, right? And you're seeing this, and then it changes, and then you see a drop. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. So there's only, so a lot of the combatants in the data sets are one-offs, or, or only a couple observations. So it would be a, a pretty small subset of the data set to do that on. So I haven't done it. But I could, I could do it. I mean, there, there are some combats, like, you know, the rushes in the data set 30 or 40 times, you know, um, things like that. But there's a lot that are just one-offs, so you wouldn't let me get the cross-section, I think. But I love the idea that the 13th, 14th century, this might have some traction on that. I love it. I, I wanted to go farther back in time, and then I had to be sort of pragmatic a little bit. But I, I, I love this notion. That's really cool. Okay. Oh, last two finger, yeah. Two finger from Gary. Yeah, this is actually a nice bow, because two fingers both have my points connected. Um, cool. So, um, my thought was on the on the case study, better case study possible if it exists in your data. Yeah. Um, rather than Pecan and Polanco, yeah. um, which I sort of agree with you. People are gonna like raise their eyebrows and think. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want them to do this. that. Like, no way to review this. Like. Yes, I want that too. No. Also, like. <laughs> yeah. Also, like there there's almost no citations in that section, um, which would be helpful for them because they'll point to them. Yeah. Um, but if there's a if there's a point in your data where you do see a change in the composition of the military, such as U.S. In, New York immigrants, right, in the Korean War, yeah, um, or a, a profound change, even the U.S. integrating gender, yeah. right, and now all of a sudden women are allowed to serve um, in combat roles. Um, I don't know, if, you know, I'm assuming this exists for other states as well, where there's an executive decision made. And all of a sudden, your state goes from one to the next. Yes. Um, that would be a fascinating case study to look at the before and after and see how that changes the grievance levels, how that changes the 
composition and how that how that engages with the so I do this in the book. I have the uh, Soviet Union actually okay. pivots hard, and I can do it at the sort of level of the army, and um, I can do it at the unit level. So there's like a historiography of a unit uh, as it's changing and seeing how it uh, adjusts. Um, the most fascinating and underreported piece of Eastern Front, uh, I'm a big kind of trivia buff on this stuff on the Eastern Front, is you know we always think of this Soviet steamroller, right? The Soviet steamroller just swamped the Germans and they just couldn't handle it. It was a traditional warfare. Where did all the soldiers come from? Right? Came from Central Asia. They were Central Asians. They weren't they weren't ethnically Russians. They were Central Asians. And so like how did they get these Central Asians who had been marginalized into their ranks? And then so we've kind of followed that story along and things like that. Um, so I mean I, I could do that. It's certainly a high profile case. I mean it could definitely fit in there. I kind of, I mean, I like the matching thing because then it's like, look, it's it's the bridge between the quant and the qualitative, and then I can kind of like do a methody piece, but still, um, but I, but I really. The community before and after is still in most is still in most of our cases in that sense. I mean, you're. It's true, but it it's not clean yeah. in the endogeneity issues, including on the identity type, right? You worry that the identity type gets wrapped inside the war dynamics, and you, know, you see Stalin trying to pivot hard and like trying to relax this type two, and trying to see like how he gets around that. And you start saying, well, then it's then it's just purely endogenous to wartime dynamics, and so which I don't think is true, but but it looks like it is. Um, so so I don't know. I mean, I, I agree. Like this thing of like sending out for Kokan to Morocco, it's a. You know, AAPSR. You know, you wanna you wanna publish on the Kokan. It's not there anymore. It's been it's been crushed for like 150 years. But it's an interesting case. So I don't know. Um, the other thing, I mean, I can document the the heck out of this thing. I mean, part of it is just you know, I, um, just the space. But I mean, the it's a chapter in the book, and so like the book's just. The other thing is, it's all in old Slavonic. It's all old Russian. And so I, even citing this stuff, I don't know. I mean, I'm worried people are gonna say there's no English on this. Like I can't I can't even go check a book out on Kokan. What am I supposed to, you know what I mean? What am I supposed to review? So, I, I don't know. Cornell we used to call this the King of Sweden problem, where we had somebody who wrote on Sweden and nobody knew anything about Sweden. So, he could say anything about Sweden and you never knew because nobody knew anything about Sweden. It's the same thing with Kokan a little bit. So, I'm not sure what to do. Do you have an outline of your book slide in your um, PowerPoint deck? Maybe. Gosh, you guys are pushing me hard here. Uh, no, I'm going the wrong way. So, I got this in the maps. No, you know what? I think I actually took it out. So, so what are the cases in the book? Yes. We're close to the holiday season, so I'm doing you a favor because, you know, people are putting together their holiday shopping list. And we, you know, they, they want to think about your yeah. manuscript. Well, I appreciate that, but I, I'm, I'm thinking holiday 2017, not holiday 2016, I think, at this point. Um, so the book basically goes, so you got your intro, you got your theory. The first little large N, which is on the battlefield behavior. There's a natural experiment, which is the rise and fall of the Madia state. Uh, poor guy, Madia comes to power, creates the state. He's on the height of his powers of type zero. He defeats the British, he's the height of his power, he gets typhus and dies. Uh, so there's your natural experiment. And a successor comes in and takes it to a type two and ravages his military. And the British come right back through and destroy the state in about a dozen years. And then we go, then we go through uh, history. So Kokan and Morocco are a pair. Austro-Hungary and Turkey are a pair. There's um, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Ethiopia in the current era. There's the longitudinal on the Soviet Union and Germans in Eastern Front, which is my high-end case. And then I come back and say, well, you might imagine battlefield performance explaining war outcomes, so then I have the cross-national for the, the war outcomes, and then I have the conclusion, and then I'm not allowed to write anymore. 
because it's like 12 chapters and 225,000 words. And the press is like, ooh, that's big. So um, this is the short version of it. I had all these other cases. I was like, you want, I want to give you every decade. And, and that got to be excessive. So, so part of it is um, some of the cases are really unusual, and they're deliberately designed to, to push hard on political science and sort of like what counts as a case. You know, why, why are we always looking at the same cases? Uh, you know, a lot of us you know, build our theories and test it on the same cases. Like, that's a no-no. You shouldn't be doing it. So, okay. Holiday 2017, holiday 2017. Great stocking stuff. Where you have to have a big stocking, but it'll, it'll, it'll go. So. You say you got the Dale Copeland problem. The books are too big? Well, Copeland showed up with a manuscript that was, you know, like 325,000 words or oh, something. Oh, that's crazy. Like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. And uh, they made him turn it into two books. So I, yeah. I don't know who you press it. Yeah. It seems like a uh, very large manuscript. The editor said, I have one word for you. I said, what's that? Internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything on the internet. Yeah. Well, we're in, we're full of the holiday cheer, thinking already ahead to, uh, the, uh, the holiday gifts for uh, 2017. Uh, yeah. Please uh, join me in uh, thanking Jason for uh, tour de force um, and uh, terrific presentation. Uh, and welcome for your first visit to Notre Dame. Uh, certainly hope it won't be your last. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.